Well, I think you get the sense that I'm approaching today a little more solemnly, perhaps somberly than normal. Uh, It's a quite theological day, and that's not to say other Sundays aren't. Every Sunday should be a theological. After all, this is a gathering about God, correct? And so it's theological by design and nature, but today we'll have a little more of a theologically intellectual bent because there's going to be several places I'll admit to you I'm not sure what to make of this and you'll say I'm not either probably there'll be places where I'll tell you what I think and you will probably disagree and there'll be places where we'll all have questions and so we're going to kind of uh, be in the you know three to six foot range and then at a certain point we're going to kind of take the sub really low and so we'll need to have really good air pressure in the room all right that's kind of what's on tap, and I want to make sure that we just have the proper spirit going into this because we're approaching the subject of the unpardonable sin, or what's also referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're asking, what is that? In one sense, we're taking the blasphemy challenge today. Now, we're not taking it as some folks took it on YouTube If you check it out on YouTube, you were to type in blasphemy challenge, you'll be surprised what you'll find. We're taking it from this aspect. What does it mean to commit the unpardonable sin? Can a Christian commit it? Can it be committed today at all? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as opposed to blasphemy in general? What's going on in Mark chapter 3 verses 20 to 35? Let's dive in and find out, can we? Your Bibles are there, your phones are there. It's the the place where we come to now in this narrative. And I'd like to read the the set of scriptures we're looking at, and then we'll come back and we'll analyze it from three general kind of viewpoints, okay? But here's the overall text for us. Beginning in verse 20, it says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again. And you know, if you've heard me speak in these first 10, 12, 13 weeks on this series through Mark, the crowd is consistently seen as a negative obstacle. It may not be true in every of the gospel writers' um, accounts, but in Mark, he portrays the crowd as an obstacle to Christ's mission. Here again, same kind of uh, perspective. The crowd gathered again, and, and here's what every man can relate to, so that they could not even eat. You with me, guys? I mean, you get a big crowd in the way of the buffet line, and the guys are going to get mad, right? We want, we want our food, correct? Here is families like, hey, we can't even have family meal together because the crowd is just so massive and pervasive and uh, pressing in on Christ. And so when they heard this, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. In other words, as they watched the, these weeks and months, and we're going to a year now, uh, past a year of his ministry, they, they were concluding that something's not right with Jesus upstairs, I mean mentally. Now, let me bring some further weight to that. I'll just give you one example of that. There were some in Christ's immediate family who actually did not believe until the resurrection. One of those was James. You can find in certain other parts of the New Testament where James did not believe his brother at all during his lifetime, even through his death. But the resurrection, he realized you really are who you said you were your whole life. And so this is what's going on here. There, there, this is kind of the beginning of just like, man, Jesus, you've got something screwy up here. Like something's not right. And so they're trying to find him. They're trying to get him to come back inside. Let's get rid of the crowds. 
Let's talk to you. Let's see if we can bring you to some kind of sanity. Well, while this is happening, notice the elevation now. Notice the escalation of the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. And they weren't just saying he's out of his mind. Notice what they're saying. He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Wow. They've taken this to another level, haven't they? And so he calls them and he says to them now in parables. In other words, he's going to tell them a couple of stories that logically show that their deduction can't be accurate. Look what he does. Verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. In other words, he takes various entities, one large like a kingdom and one smaller like a house, but showing that in both cases, the logic is if the folks who are within that unit aren't together, it won't be stronger, it won't stand, it will actually fall. And so he's just logically saying, your accusation doesn't make any sense. Remember, he's not speaking theologically yet, just logically. Verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's an illustration of what Christ came to do. So why would he come to bind the strong man Satan and plunder Satan's house, remove his ability to, to kill, steal, and destroy if he was actually empowered by Satan? So in, in multiple fronts, he's showing the illogical nature of their accusation. But now he moves to more of a theological assertion. And this is where the, the text is, becomes just um, pretty hard to swallow. Let's read this. He says, truly I say to you. And so he's ramping up his response now. The word truly means verily. He's saying an attention-grabbing way to kind of get, their, uh, you know, get them on notice. It's like when your mom calls you by all of your names and not just one of your names. Same idea here. So he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark adds this, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, on the heels of this, we go back to the, the family situation. His mother and his brothers came and they're standing outside. They sent to him and they called him. Remember they were trying to get him to come in earlier? They're trying to seize him, so to speak, the scripture says. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, the crowd did, your mother and your brothers, they're outside, they're seeking you. By the way, the word seeking there, that verb is used 12 times in the gospel of Mark. Not a, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago in a message, but this is another instance of which this verb is never used indicating someone's coming to uh, help, get you to help them for the right reason. It's always kind of like a, um, a hook in it. Like, hey, we're coming to find you because we've got a plan for you. We've got an agenda. This is another one of those 12 uses in which they're coming to find him because they've got their uh, plan, which is to get him away from the crowd because they think he's kind of crazy. Well, he looks at them and says, who are my mother and my brothers, verse 33. 
And then looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Interesting text in which the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is bookended by two family narratives, kind of two family encounters. What's going on here? Well, let's tackle it from three angles. I'll be somewhat brief in these. I think as we come to the last one, it'll make most sense. We're kind of on a journey here today, so just kind of bear with me as it will probably unfold incrementally. Let's tackle the background first. I think the background is really laid out for us well in verse 22 when it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. This began back in chapter 2 verse 7. You should make a note in your Bible about that. That's when they were saying things like, you're blaspheming. And then they began to ask him questions. And what we find is from chapter 2 verse 7 all the way up to this point, These religious leaders are going from questions to accusations. Are you tracking with me? And this context is important because it's in the context that we actually understand the content of the unpardonable sin. So you've got to get the context. This is a a kind of a trajectory in the wrong direction. These religious leaders are seeing Christ do miracles. They're hearing his proclamations about his Messiahship. They're understanding his claims to deity. And at every turn... They try to trap him or corner him or ask a question, and that's moving to where now they're accusing him of operating in the power of Satan. So this is an important background. I say it like this often, that what we have here really is more instruction about the constant state of no that the religious leaders were living in. Like This is what we're seeing here, just another portrayal of how they're continually saying no to Christ. It started off with questions. Now it's an accusation. Of course, remember, they're plotting to kill him. The Herodians are as well. This is all going on in the background. So as this is happening, Christ brings up the statement. Let's go to that next. What is the statement that he actually makes that contains this unpardonable sin? Knowing the background, the context, let's get to the content of His words, the statement beginning in verse 28. I'll read it again to you. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Notice the plural nature of that there. He includes in that whatever blasphemies they utter. That's a plural nature too. So he seems to be saying, here's the, the, um, we'll call it the collection of sins. And all sins are forgiven. All blasphemies. Then he says, But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, suddenly he moves to a singular specific sin, doesn't he? This person never has forgiveness. He's guilty of an eternal sin. So what's going on with this, Todd? What is the unpardonable sin? Well, there's a spectrum going on. Some believe this, that the unpardonable sin can't be committed today. You actually may be in that camp if you've studied this before or thought about it. They say that it can't happen because Christ is not here in person performing a miracle to which we would ascribe that miracle done in the power of Satan. Because that can't happen currently in that way, they say um, it can't happen today. I used to be in that camp. I used to believe that. In the past several years, I've let go of that. I think I adopted that because it was an easy answer. People would ask me, you know, kids in youth ministry, hey, I'm worried I've committed the unpardonable sin, have I? 
And I would just say, well, don't worry, you can't commit that today. And, but as I've dug into this text and the context and the scriptures, I don't hold that view any longer. I don't hold this view either, which the other end of the spectrum is this, that it's some kind of like spell. It's like this incantation. It's like this Harry Potter type of like chant you say. And once you've said it, oh, no, you can never take it back. This is what the blasphemy challenge has been about on YouTube several years ago. You ought to uh, just search it. It's like these people who kind of want to show their bravado spiritually. And so they kind of chant these verses. They kind of say them like a, like a spell. And the truth is, this is not really a mantra that if you say it, it's something magical about the words. Are you with me? That's not the point he's making. It's like salvation. There's, there's really not a sinner's prayer that's a magic formula. Are you with me? It's the posture of the heart. And so the same thing with this. It's not like, oh, I said those words in that order, and I didn't, oh, no, I'm, I'm doomed forever. It's not like this mantra, this spell. So what is it? If it's not either of these extremes, what is it? I think the best way to understand what the unpardonable sin is to understand that this is what I call a, a sin that's eventual. It's not a sin that's an exception. You see, we often read this like an exception sin, like, there's all these sins you can do, but you can't do this one. That's not the point of the text. The text is actually saying God forgives all sins, all blasphemies. But there's one that all sins and blasphemies lead to that he won't forgive. You see, I think this is what I call an eventual sin, not an exception sin. Because it's not a sin of mantra, it's a sin of movement. It happens incrementally, progressively, as you continually say no to Christ, as you harden your heart slowly, deceptively, but surely over time, what happens is you become hardened to where no is your always constant answer to Jesus. Now watch this. And when God speaks to you and you continually say no, if you remain in that position, it's impossible to forgive you. Why? Because you're not acknowledging Jesus is the Christ and that God saves through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. As long as you maintain, no, Jesus isn't God. God doesn't save through Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't empower that. It's, you're unforgivable. Does that make sense? You can't deny the very work that God does and then say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. You're actually in the posture of unforgiveness. So they're incompatible. You can't say this and believe this, that, that God doesn't save through Jesus by the Spirit's power. You can't deny that and then maintain that you're a Christian. It's incompatible. It's an unforgivable sin, which is why in the text, and here me give you some more proof to this, these are present tense conditions and situations. Look at me at verse 29. Whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, watch this, this is a present tense, never has forgiveness. It just simply says this, is never experiencing forgiveness. As long as you hold that God doesn't save through Jesus by the power of the Spirit, you know what? You'll never experience forgiveness. They're incompatible. Same thing is true with the idea of a guilty of an eternal sin. It's this present tense. They are being guilty of an eternal sin. So, so the unpardonable sin, the one that can't be forgiven, is, in a nutshell, the persistent refusal to acknowledge 
that Jesus is God's spirit-empowered mediator. So I'm going to say that again to you. It's kind of a succinct definition. I've written it down here to make sure I give it to you right. But if you were to ask me what, what I think the unpardonable sin is, based on context and content, verb usage and tenses, I would say it's a stubborn, continued refusal to acknowledge Jesus as God's spirit-empowered mediator. And as long as someone holds that position, watch this now, watch the phrasing here, they won't be forgiven. Now, I want you to hold that definition in your mind, right? It's not that difficult to grasp, and we're going to take the submarine a few hundred feet lower. Air compression's good, we're going to be okay. Are, are you with me? Because the question you're wondering is like, well, Todd, that sounds like you're saying that if someone just keeps denying Christ and not believing then they'll never be forgiven and they'll die in their sin. That is what I'm saying, but what you're wondering is, but is there ever a place when that becomes like, well, they can never get saved? Like, can you commit that sin and, 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 and unbelieve in such a way that suddenly you, you're never able to believe? Like, is there a line that you cross to where God says, it's not that you just won't get saved, now you can't get saved is there that line because often that's what we think about when we think of unpardonable sin don't we we think about something that can never be undone that's a great question i'm gonna tell you where i am on that and why i'm there and i'll give you some scriptures then you can kind of wrestle it through in your mind this is not to minimize god's grace or his long arm of salvation or to say that i think many people reach this but i do personally believe there is a line at which point, after so much refusal of hearing God's message, God gives us over to the full end of our unbelief. He lets our hard hearts have their full extent. And it's not then that we won't be saved. It's then that we actually can't be saved. Now, I don't know where that line is, but I do think that is, a, in my mind, in the realm of possibility. And I'll tell you why. In 1 John chapter 5, we have another uh, instruction about a similar sin, if not the same sin. Will you look with me at 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17? I want you to see these stark words. Now, I don't know if this is referencing the same sin or not. I tend to think it is, and I'll tell you why, because it deals with... The, the, the narrative in Mark 3 and the book of 1 John deal with the person of Jesus. And John says, if you deny Jesus Christ in the flesh, you're none of his. So, so if you deny who Jesus is, if you say he's not God's spirit-empowered mediator to reconcile us and forgive us, if you keep denying that, you, you know, that's similar to Mark 3, John, 1 John 5. In other words, that's a sin that leaves you unforgivable and can you continue to stay in that unbelief in a way that suddenly God no longer calls out to you to be saved? Where it's not that you won't be saved, again, it's that you can't be saved. I think 1 John 5 is an example of that personally. You don't have to land there. This is not a fellowship issue. It's not even a salvation issue, whether we agree on this. I want you to wrestle it out. Here's where I'm at personally. Look at 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. 
I do not say that one should pray for that. You know what John's saying here? I think he's saying there is a line in God's economy, a sin, and we don't know what it is, by the way, but a sin that, that someone crosses and God says, that's it. Now, is he saying, I'm bringing you home because you're a Christian? Or is he simply saying, death's the next thing for you? We don't know a lot of those details. And what is the sin? We don't know. I tend to think the sin's related to the person and work of Christ because that's the point of 1 John, to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But I can't say that definitively, all right? My studies led me to think this is a very similar situation, if not the same situation as Mark 3. Someone who continually refuses and is in lockdown mode that Jesus Christ is God's spirit-empowered mediator. And then suddenly, they keep saying no. That's like Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? He no, no, no. And suddenly, the Bible goes from where Pharaoh hardened his heart to where it says God hardened his heart. Remember Romans 1? Where they kept saying no to God, no to God. God turned them over. God turned them over. So I think textually speaking, we would be remiss, and I would be remiss as your pastor and teacher to make you think that that God's just kind of in this arms-folded position, like, well, could you hurry up and decide, please? Could you, could you just, you know, could you make a decision? I'm waiting. I'm kind of like this hands are tied posture. That's not God. God is actively reaching out to lost sinners. But there is, I believe, a, a line in which their continued no moves his hand to give them the full extent of their sin. I hope that terrifies you appropriately. I think that's what's happening here in Mark 3. Remember, context helps us see content. What had been going on with the scribes, religious leaders? A consistent, repeated pattern of, no, you're not the Christ. You're blaspheming God. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And they just kept coming at him, cornering him, trapping him. And then it turned to accusations. You know what? We think you're actually part of Satan at some point. I think there's a line, and I believe it's shown in Matthew 23 for these religious leaders. Do you know that? Now, Matthew 23, what happens is this. It's right before Passion Week, and he is called out to the Jewish nation through the religious leaders for three years. They've refused him. They've plotted to kill him. They've denied him. They've tried to trap him. They've tried to corner him. And he says to them, end of Matthew 23, which is a chapter in which they, he says, you scribes and Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like dens of ravenous uh, vipers and venomous snakes. I mean, it's a pretty tough message. You think today's tough. You should have heard that one, right? At the end of that, he says with such great compassion, Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. And then he says, now it's too late. And he actually takes a proactive stance against them. Meaning that at that point, it wasn't that they wouldn't repent. It was now they couldn't repent. These are tough scriptures. This is difficult language. But we must wrestle with what some of these things mean. I think Mark chapter 3 is one of those moments in which God is calling out 
to these religious leaders, don't keep saying no to me. I actually don't believe at this point he's actually saying they've committed the unpardonable sin. Did you know that? Textually, you probably would be hard-pressed to say he's accusing them of it. He's explaining to them what this sin looks like. The eventual end of saying no to God is a hardened heart that can't repent. Now, as long as you have this hardened heart, repeated no, you're unforgivable because those are incompatible. But, but the minute you say yes, God forgives. He forgives all blasphemies, all sins. But there is a point in which this sin suddenly becomes this, this eternally unforgivable one. I think when this line is crossed, only God knows where it is and exactly what the sin is. But it's evidenced by a continuing no to God's voice to be saved by Jesus through the Spirit's power. He's calling here to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders saying, guys, listen to me. Do you know where you're headed? The end of this road is not good. You end up in an unforgivable state. Matthew 23, I think, lays out for us that very moment. Mark doesn't do that. It's somewhere between Mark 10 and 12 chronologically, but he doesn't record that event. Matthew does. So I think that's the best way to understand the statement. If you land somewhere differently, man, that's not a fellowship issue. Can we all nod and smile? Because it's been pretty tense for the last you know, 15 minutes, I know. But can we take a breather here? Yeah, you may say, Todd, I think it's one that can't be committed. Man, we'll shake hands. We'll go to the buffet. We'll eat together. If the crowd's not there, we'll be good, right? Um, maybe you think it's this kind of incantation, spell-like Harry Potter chant that if you say accidentally you're doomed, we can still eat together. I don't agree with that at all. But, I mean, my point is, where we land on maybe what this sin actually is, there's some room there. There's freedom for Christians to investigate and kind of wrestle through. But I think we would both agree, we would all agree, that the end game is that it's the heart that keeps saying no to God that's so worrisome. Do you, do you sense that? And the context and the content is really the point here. One last bit of evidence for why I hold this position. You know, it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why isn't it called the blasphemy of God's Son? Why isn't it called the blasphemy of the Father? Here's why. Because what Christ is talking about is forgiveness. It's bookended with the family things. And so he's talking about how do you become part of God's family? And that's done when the... When when the Holy Spirit takes the gospel message and opens someone's eyes to it. In fact, listen very carefully to me. No one can be saved without the Holy Spirit's power. No one comes to God on their own. No one self-wills, moralizes. No one makes their way to God out of their own sheer determination. Nobody. So for someone to come to Christ, they have to be empowered, what we call regeneration, by the Holy Spirit. There's conviction, regeneration. For the scribes to say, you're doing your work through Satan's power, they're actually saying, they're, they're sabotaging, undermining one of salvation's specific elements, which is that the Holy Spirit applies what the Son purchased and the Father planned. You see, that's how theologians have for centuries described salvation. In layman's terms, the Father planned it, the Son purchased it, and the Spirit applies it. And so when you say, well, you're not doing God's work in the power of the Spirit, 
You're doing it in the power of Satan. When you don't realize Jesus is the spirit-empowered mediator from God, you're undermining the spirit's work in applying salvation to people's hearts. So they call that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because that's really what you're sabotaging and undermining. It's God's spirit work to take the gospel message and save people through it. That's why I, I think the real gist is it's this stubborn, continued refusal to acknowledge Jesus as God's spirit-empowered mediator. As long as that's your posture, you can't be forgiven because you're not acknowledging Jesus who he said he was and did what he said he would do. But beware, church. Beware, listener. Listen very carefully. I believe there is a line in which that continued state of refusal can actually become a permanent, hardened position where it's not that you will now won't be saved, it's now that you can't be saved. Well, Todd, can you take all this information and this deep dive and can you kind of get us back to the surface for a little air? Can we, can we simplify things? Yeah, let's talk about the point just for a few more minutes and I'll get you out of here, okay? What's the point of all these verses? Well, let me just give it to you in a nutshell. It's to accept, not reject. I mean, that's the simplest way I can say it. It's in verse 35. You see that, don't you? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I think this is the real point of these 15 or so verses. He's saying it's not your title or even your bloodline. Remember, his family's nearby, right? It's not the fact that you're related by blood or that you have a, a title called Pharisee or scribe. It's not position. Here's who's in the family. Here's who knows forgiveness. Those who do the will of God. That's my brother and sister and mother. Now you're asking yourself, what's the will of God, Todd? Glad you asked. Great question. John 6 tells us clearly what the will of God is, what the work of God is. Look at this verse behind me. John chapter 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So when he says, those who do the will of God, he's saying those who are sitting at my feet believing and acknowledging and surrendering. You see, that's the contrast here. It's those on the inside versus those on the outside. It's not his family versus the Pharisees. It's not the scribes versus those who are at the table to eat. It's those who are listening to him and acknowledging him as Jesus, the spirit-empowered mediator from God, versus those who are saying you're empowered by Satan. And those who are with him, remember this is a survey took, you see that divine survey? It says there in verse uh, 32, he says, yeah, he looked around. He said, hey, here's who my mother and brother and sisters are. That's verse, verse 34, actually. Those who sat around him. So what, what Christ is saying is those who are with me, those who are sitting around and listening, acknowledging, surrendering, submitting, that's my family. Those who are believing. Not those who are pretending or dressed up right, have a certain title. It's those who are at his feet and know that the term brother Sister and mother is far more prestigious than scribe, Pharisee. <laughs> yeah. Can I show you something really delightful? In making this point, 
that those who are in his family are actually those who believe. He uses a phrase in verse 34, Mark does. He says that Christ looked about at those who sat around him. Do you see that phrase? If you look back in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, what was the very first thing that the apostles were appointed to do? Do you remember from last week? He picked 12. He appointed them that they might be with him. Remember the relational aspect is first. What are these folks doing? What's his true family doing? They're just being with him. They're sitting with him. And they're seeing him as God's son. Motivated and empowered by the spirit. Sent to save sinners. They're surrendering. That's, that's beautiful to me. I love how Mark writes. And then Jesus comments, of course, this is my family. Those who believe. It's my sister, my brother, my mother. And so I think in all the potential complications of the unpardonable sin, wherever you land on it or not, here's what we do know. God does not want you to continually say no to Jesus as the only way to be saved. He wants you to come in from the outside, sit down on his feet, and acknowledge Jesus. And here's the scary thing about this narrative. Is in this narrative, at least, he's not inviting people in from the outside who are the prostitute, the broken, the tax collector, the publican, is he? And we know he did invite those, right? He was with them. We've seen that earlier in Mark. We have no doubt about that. But in this case, who's he inviting in? Who's he warning of continually saying no? He's warning the religious people. And church, this is why bringing this message to you is not out of line. It's not out of place. Because there are people who think their life is okay because they physically go to a building called a church and it has many benefits and privileges and they're playing along pretty good. And I don't know that everyone's doing this intentionally. These folks in this group may not even be aware of it. But they just added religion to their life. They can dress the part, speak the part, They've been doing it since they were four or six or eight or 12. And it's actually kind of fun. You get some activities here or there, some events. You get some bonuses and good relationships. Like, hey, it's a good deal. But if you were to press them, what do you believe about Jesus and the only way to get to heaven? Do you think the only way to be in his family and forgiven is through him? Is he God's spirit-empowered mediator for the forgiveness of your sin? They'd be like, well, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that. They're actually lost There are people within the sound of my voice this morning at both services, well-intentioned but uninformed that they're actually going to hell. I say that not as a criticism. I'm not upset at anyone. God knows my love for you is extremely deep. But in my effort to have the clearest voice about this, this narrative does not occur in the middle of of those who know they're lost. This narrative occurs in the middle of those who think they're saved. And oh, it grieves my heart daily that one day we may stand before the Lord. And I don't even know if this is the way it's going to happen. I don't know, but this is how in my imagination I think about it. 
And you look around and you wonder, where's so-and-so? And could it be that for decades they just played the game? But actually in their heart, they were always saying no, no. And so five, ten, eight, decade after decade, they just told God no and never really experienced the forgiveness and familyness offered by God through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That would be grieving. This should be a sobering moment for our church. That you can be this close to Jesus, that well-informed of the Old Testament as the scribes were, who copied down the scriptures, that you can be that in touch with the, with the Messiah and still go to hell. This is why it's important you don't keep saying no to Christ. Say yes to Jesus every time God calls. Man, respond with a heart of surrender and submission. Oh, now I've got to land this plane. Let me give you the, the take-home truth. Take a snapshot of this. Write it down. Here's what we're saying this morning. Here's what I think these 15 or so verses are, are showing us. That forgiveness and familyness, the mother-brother-sister relationship, they're really gifts from God through his Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's the gospel, church. That's what it is. It's Christ dying in our place by the will of the Father, and then that's applied by the power of the Spirit. Those are gifts and we should respond to those with humble obedience and submission. Now, we could end it there, but I think in light of the text, we need to add this one last phrase. Because if we don't respond that way when God calls us to repentance and salvation, we'll miss them due to willful and continued opposition to the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to hear this. As one guy rowing the boat of pastoring a church, I'm not perfect at it, but my heart after 15 years, loves you people. And if you keep saying no, if you keep opposing God, if you reject his call over and over and weasel your way out of the clear evidential nature that God saves people through Jesus by the power of the Spirit, there could come a time when you no longer even hear God's Spirit. His long arm is no longer stretched out to you because you've crossed a line. You've said no one too many times. So I just, I want to urge you, say yes to the call of God to believe in Jesus as the spirit-empowered mediator to reconcile us back to God and experience forgiveness. This has left me with really two competing emotions. And on this I'm going to close and we'll, we'll say some prayers and be done. Two competing emotions I had this week. And I've journaled this, in fact. One is I, I find myself, and you'll, you'll be not like this, but if you don't, you'll get over it, um, appropriately terrified of God. 
And there have been a few moments this week I thought, man, I, I'm not, I don't want to mess with him. Now, I don't think a, Christian, a genuine Christian can commit this sin, so I'm not worried I'm going to commit this sin, okay? Because the same power that God has to decree and decide my eternal fate is the same power he has that once he's genuinely birthed me into his family, he will keep me saved, amen? I'm not worried about losing my salvation. What I'm saying is that this is a great God in heaven, And most of us are too glib and light about the great God in heaven who controls our eternal destinies and can, when the nose cross a line, actually stop reaching out to you. That, all I can say is, it's just appropriately terrifying to me. God is awesome. But the other competing emotion is this. I don't know how much that happens or when it happens. And I've told you, frankly, I'm not sure if it happens. I tend to think it can, but I've not got a ton of proof there. Just my study and research and where I led you there. But I will say this. Even if that were to happen, what we have in the scriptures really is a picture of God and his incredible, great, long-suffering, always reaching out to man. Like this is kind of the, the place that at the very last straw, are you with me? This unpardonable sin is not the norm. It's not the regular experience. And so that shows me something. God is so great. He's, he's incredibly merciful and long-suffering and patient. So I, I find myself appropriately terrified, and yet I find myself appropriately thankful. <laughs> like, wow, God, who is like you in all the universe? That in the face of those who sin against you, and turn their back on you and say no to you. You continue to reach out to them with the message of salvation. What kind of God does that? There's no parent that good. I want to even the score quick, don't you? But God is a good father. And in my years of wandering and stray, God was always reaching out. And in your years of rebellion and lostness, God was calling you to come home. So I'm appropriately terrified at a God so great, and yet I'm so deeply thankful for a God so patient. That's the God of Mark 3, 20 to 35, that you should hear and say yes to. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.